You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, visit sojournmontrose.org. Jump into uh, Genesis 1. And just so you know, um, the, the structure of the sermons for the next several weeks will be essentially exactly the same, right? So what we're going to do first is we're going to look at the nature of the covenant. So like we're going to look at the, the covenant that God lays out, what, what it's kind of comprised of, how it's organized, what, what that looks like, right? The nature of the covenant. Then we're going to look at specifically the blessings of that covenant and the obligations of the covenant, right? Because that's what, that's what we said a covenant was, right? Covenant is a relationship between God and man comprised of blessings and obligations, right? So we'll look at that and then we'll, we'll, we'll conclude the sermon with, or the final point of the sermon will be then, right? The, the sermon series is titled Christ of the Covenant. So we will look at then how it is that Christ fulfills that covenant in our place, how it is that Christ is the end of that covenant, how it is that Christ um, has made that covenant uh, a new reality for us um, in and through his, his work on our behalf. So does that, that sound good? It should be fairly logical. Um, uh, just know, like I said, that, that we've kind of got a lot to race through. And so if you have questions about this afterwards, like I'll address all that I can. Um, so let's dive right in. The nature of the covenant, right? So who is Adam and what is at the core of this covenant? Now, um, we didn't take uh, great pains to, to read the whole of Genesis chapters 1 and 2, but what, what, what we know if we've read it is that it's really kind of weird, right? That Genesis chapter 1 sort of has this account of creation, uh, less concerned with the details of how it took place and more concerned with the who and the why. So God created it. And why did he create it? And then in chapter 2, it kind of circles back. Like God's created everything. Everything, he looks at it. He says, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. Done. Okay, what's the next part of the story? Goes back and tells us about how God created man. And at first, you're kind of like, well, what, you know, why would he do that? Is Moses just kind of crazy? Which, in case you didn't know, Moses is attributed um, with the writing of the book of Genesis. Let me just say this, um, it, it actually makes quite a bit of sense in that in Genesis chapter 1, Moses is revealing man within God's created order, right? So he's saying, here's, here's the creation, here's how God has created things, and, and here's how man fits within that in the distinct way that he does, right? And that there is a uniqueness to man that is not found in any other element of creation. Not trees, not birds, not fish, not, not beasts of the, the field, like, right? There's a uniqueness with which man is created, but it happens in the context of this grand created order that God is crafting in and of his own volition and in and of his own power, right? And then in Genesis 2, what Moses does is he recounts, again, the creation of man, but he does so in order to reveal the specific nature of God's relationship to man. So it's essentially God saying, here's how, or it's, here's how it all took place, and here specifically, let me elaborate on what I mean when I say that there's a distinct and glorious relationship that God has with man that is unlike, unlike any other relationship in creation, in the created world. Right? So it's, it, they're building on each other, not just logically, but also theologically. And so here's what, here's what he tells us in Genesis 1 and 2 about, again, who Adam is and what the nature of this covenant is, what the core of this covenant is. 
So what we saw in uh, verse 25 was this. God said, let us make man in our own image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And so what we see here quite clearly, again, I, I think just by looking at Moses' language, what is Moses concerned about? Is he concerned about, well, it happened this way, and so scientifically you would explain it this way, and that means that, you know, 4,000 years ago, these, right? He's not doing that. He's not, this isn't a biology class. This isn't a microbiology, evolutionary biology. It's, it's none of those things. What is he concerned about? So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created him. Right? So he's emphasizing, he's putting an emphasis on the fact that we are created beings and that we've been created, again, unlike any other work of his creation, we've been created in his image. Right? I had Chelsea read verse 24 for a reason. It sounds kind of like a weird place to start. Right? It says, And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kind. And that's important because um, the beasts were made after their kind. But when creating Adam and Eve, God does something different. He creates Adam and Eve after his kind. If you, if you have recently taken a biology course, think of it this way, right? We're, we're of, of God's genus. But there's a sense in which we have been created, again, in his image, in his likeness. That man, again, right, for whatever reason, has been given an exalted position in creation. Now, understand this. Before we even move on, right, God's not obligated in any way to do that. This is just God creating, right? Like, creator gets to do what he wants, right? That's why someone can, like, throw one splotch of paint on a canvas and say it's art. That's what, it's what I said it is. I made it. I said it's what it is. That's what it is. God, in very much in the same way, creates and he says, look, this is what I'm doing and this is how I've done it. I've created man in my own image. And then he says to Adam and to Eve, or he, he says about them that they will be given dominion. That they will rule. So that they will they will be created in God's image, and much like God, they will rule, and they will rule as ambassadors of His glory. The image that they bear of God in them will be propagated to the ends of the earth, right? That's why He tells them, all right, you have my image, you have dominion over the earth, now be fruitful and multiply so that my image, so that my glory fills the earth. I think Psalm chapter 8 gives us some really good insight into it. I just want to read it real quick because I think, again, we'll see some unity here in the Christian Scriptures. And this is uh, the King David writing in Psalm chapter 8, and this is what he says, starting in verse 3. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set into place, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him? Like David's going, why did you do this? You didn't, have to, you didn't have to do this. You've created all of this glorious creation, and yet, for whatever reason, you are mindful of man. And not only is he mindful, verse 5 says this, yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly being, crowned him with glory and honor, 
given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all of the earth. This This is who Adam is. This is what humanity is created to be. Created to be in God's image. Created to to rule from God's image such that His glory and our joy would be achieved. So what is at the core of this covenant, right? This word that we're using, this relationship, right? So that's that's who He's created us to be, but what bearing does that have now on our relationship with Him? How does that inform our relationship with God, right? Well, at the core of this relationship, there's ordinances, right? We're, we're made in God's image. We're created for dominion. And underneath all of that, here's what he wants us to do. God blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. And then he goes on in chapter 2 to say, rest like I rest as you were. And then he goes on also in chapter 2 to tell us that man would enjoy relationship generally. Like, so Adam's lack of relationship was met in Eve, right? So generally, there's going to be humans, other humans that we were created to enjoy relationship with generally, but that also will experience and enjoy relationship specifically in an institution that God calls marriage. So there'll be two, sort of a, a general and a specific way in which we experience relationship, and it will be glorious and it will be good. So this is, this is what the relationship between God and man now looks like. Man created in God's image, created to rule and subdue, bless and multiply in his name, experience his rest, work for his good, and enjoy relationship not just with him but with one another, right? That's it. That's, that's what we're created for. That's the purpose of life. That's what right now, that, that pain in your chest, that feeling of lack comes because of the fact that, that not only one, but probably multiple of those things are not currently a reality for you. Maybe in a sense, but certainly not in their ultimate reality. So that's the nature of the covenant. So what, what are the specific, though, blessings and obligations of the covenant, right? So, so to put it in another word or in another sentence, what does God promise and what does God expect in this covenant? And then let's look at how did Adam fail and, and how do we. So here's the covenant blessings, right? Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. I'm going to read just a couple of verses from here for us uh, gradually as we walk through it. Again, remember, this is Moses explaining God's covenant relationship with man. And this is what it says in verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. So God breathes life into Adam, right? Life is not something that Adam has earned. Life is not something that Adam can take up for himself. Life is not something that Adam can conjure or, or, or bring to pass. It's not. It's given to him by God, right? Because God's going to create man in his own image, he's going to put the blessing of life, the blessing of life into Adam himself. He's going to breathe it into him. Verse 8 says this, And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. So he gives Adam 
not only life, but he gives Adam paradise. And that, right, God, God's created all of the earth. So it's not just like Eden's hanging out in space, you know, and, and earth comes in later when everything gets broken. Like he, he's, created, he's created earth, but specifically on earth, there's a place, a location that God has made especially beautiful, especially glorious, especially providential, that he then says, here is this garden. I've made it for you. I'm going to put you in. Eden was God's gift to Adam and Eve, right? So he gives Adam life. He gives Adam paradise. And he gives Adam loving relationship with his creator. Right? Again, remember, like God's not obligated to this, right? He could have just put us there and been like, cool, have fun. But he doesn't. He, it tells us that, that he walks with Adam in the garden in the cool of the day. It shows us clearly by, by implication that, that Adam knows God and that God knows Adam in such a way that Adam's needs are known by God. And they're not just known by God and sort of flippantly set aside, but they're known by God and God says, yeah, that's not good. I'm going to create a helper that's suitable for you. God gives Adam loving relationship with his, his creator. And then finally, God gives Adam the ordinances that we just talked about, right? Those are in and of themselves blessings. The fact that you will be fruitful and multiply is a blessing. The fact that you will work and subdue the earth, that, that your work will be fruitful, right? That's a blessing in and of itself. The fact that you will experience relationship, not just generally with others and with God, but also specifically within the context of marriage. That's a blessing. You're going to enjoy God's rest. When you're, when you're done laboring, you're going to be able to set it, set it all aside and know that your worth is not contingent upon what you produce. Right? All of those things are blessings of this covenant, blessings of the covenant that God has given to Adam, the relationship that God has established with Adam at creation, right? All of those things. And so what is the covenant obligation? Right? Those are the blessings, right? A lot of us probably look at that and go, all right, what's the catch? You know? Or what's the fine print? What, where's the asterisk? There is an S in front of K. This grammar language. Um, English language. Um, what, what is that? What's the hook, right? And really, quite, quite honestly, it's, I don't think it's anything extraordinary in light of everything that's being given here. Right, this is what Genesis chapter 2 says in verse 16. It says, in the Lord God, well, let me do 15. The Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Verse 16, and the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So Adam, up to this point, has been given covenant blessings to enjoy including the ordinances for him to obey, right? To be fruitful, to multiply. This is the only negative test. This is the one restriction. And with this restriction comes a, a, a promise. Right? If you eat of that tree, you will truly experience death. That will happen. Now, so remember, right, the uniqueness that, of Adam's relationship with God at, at this point is astounding.
never experience and, and really will not experience until we are finally and fully made new in the new kingdom of God, in the presence of God through the person of Jesus. Right, remember, at this point, at this point, Adam is fully human. He's everything that God intended humanity to be. He is fully human, and in him there is no sin. So what that means is, in just a moment, when we, when we see what goes on to happen, right, we know that death is a reality, and so what the Bible posits for us is that is that, that is a result of our sinfulness. It's God being faithful to doing what he promised he would do, which is visit death upon the one who would disobey. So what we can know, really, though, is that, that if, if Adam was fully human without sin, that means that when we sin, we actually become less human. We become less of what we were intended to be. And we experience less of what we were intended to experience, certainly within the context of relationships between us and God and between us. So to sin is to be less human. Here, right, Adam doesn't need a mediator between him and God. It's just him and God. He doesn't need Jesus to come and mediate that relationship. It just is a relationship. There's no estrangement. There's no separation, right? This this is a unique relationship that Adam enjoys, that Eve enjoys with God. So what happens? Right, Genesis chapter 3, verse 6 says this. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, talking about the tree that God had prohibited, right? So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin So here's what. Here's what we can know, right? Adam Adam failed to uphold the obligation of the covenant. The obligation of the relationship, right? The boundaries within which the relationship was to take place. That one simple boundary, he fails to uphold it. He fails to uphold it and thus, right? And thus, he, he, he mars the goodness with which God has created all of this. And really, we, we, and we don't have time to do it right now, but I, I would encourage you to do it. I would encourage you to go back and read verses 1 through 13 because it's very clear in these scriptures that, that we are culpable, that we're responsible for this. You know, there's always kind of that question of like, well, did God create evil? And, and, and Genesis is being, is being very clear with us that we are responsible. We're culpable for this, and we need grace. And I think what we also see very clearly is that that really at the heart of sin, like beyond all the sort of the, the, the ways we like to categorize them, and this one's worse than this one, and this one's different from this one, and, and this one, you know, this one's more acceptable in the church today, um, even though it shouldn't be, you know, and, and, and right? All those little gymnastics we like to do, but really at the, at the heart of it is one thing, and that's rebellion. It's God says something is one way, and we go, you know what, God, I don't think that's true. I mean, that's what they do, right? God says, don't eat of that, you will surely die. They say, good to taste, gain wisdom, surely I won't die. And they, and they taste. 
Well, here's the thing. In in sort of doing this overview, right? What I don't want us to do is, is lose some of the nuance. In that there is a there is a progression that takes place for Adam and Eve. In that it isn't just they walk they were walking by the tree one day and they were like, you know what, God God said no, but whatever, let's do it. Like there's a progression. There's something that takes place in that. And here's the thing. I don't I don't think that this is a progression that only took place here. I think it's a progression that if you're a Christian in the room this morning, um, we are regularly having to battle with it. And so uh, I want us to, to look at it taking place here, and I want us to name it in our own lives. I want us to look at it and go, yeah, like, that, I, I have those conversations in my head all the time. And so here's what happens, right? Chapter 3, verse 1, I'm back, I know I'm backing up a little bit. It says this, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will surely not die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, it was delight to the eyes, and that the tree which she desired to make one life, she took of its fruit and ate. And what happened? Right? The, the, the serpent, Satan, enters into the picture, and here's this progression. Here's what takes place. First, right, Satan makes God's prohibition harsher than it was. Right, so he takes what God has said and he twists it to say something that it didn't. Think of it this way. This is a common objection, common objection to Christianity, and probably one that instills doubt in a lot of us who, who, who would claim to be Christians this morning. Christianity is a straight guy. God just doesn't want you to have fun. God doesn't want you to experience all that life has to offer. And so he's put these prohibitions in place to limit you to hold you back, to withhold blessing, not give blessing. Right? God doesn't want you to enjoy life. Adam, God doesn't want you to enjoy life. What happens next? Second, Satan questions God's reasonableness, right? So first, he, make, he, makes, God, he makes God to look like some, something that he's totally not. And then he says, isn't God unreasonable? Did he really say that? Like, is that really what he said? He makes God seem unreasonable. And, and really, like, that's, that is the essence of rebellion, right? If, re- if rebellion is the essence of sin, this is the essence of rebellion, right? So we're, we're digging down deeper and deeper and deeper into really what is, what is it that, that, that shatters it all for us. And it's that in this moment, Satan is putting himself in the judgment seat of God. Right? He's putting himself in a place to look at what God has said and say, I deem that to not be just where God says it was. And he invites Adam and Eve to do things. Right? It's saying, God, I know you've said this, but I don't believe that that's true. I don't believe that that's just. I don't believe that that's the way it is. Did you really say that? And then third, Satan directly contradicts God, right? So finally he arrives at, it's like, hey, I think this is what God said. It's not really what he said, but 
Close enough, right? And then, did he really say that? And then, you surely will not die. I know God said that you would die. You surely will not die. It won't happen. You see how that progression takes place? It's subtle at first. And you arrive at this place where, where you're believing an utter lie. It's, this is why Satan is called the deceiver. And this is why it's told to us in First Peter that he prowls around like a lion. He's calculated, right? He's not just throwing stuff to the wall to see what sticks. He's, like, he's leading you on a progression. To first, believe that God is not generous, is not, is not a God of blessing, is not a God that wants relationship with you and wants what's best for you and has created things to be good for you. Then he wants you to start asking, questioning whether or not God actually said those things. And then he wants you to outright just disbelieve him. I don't know about you, but I can take that progression right there and I can apply it to any number of situations in my own life. Right? Like, man, I, I would, I would, I've got some money in the bank account. I would love to buy a motorcycle. I'd love to. My wife does not want me to. Oh. But anyway, right? Why wouldn't I do that? Why wouldn't I? I mean, and why would God have anything to say about the way I spend my money? What difference does it make? Is He trying to withhold that from me? Would He suggest that I, that I, you know, not do that thing? And if so, why? Well, the Bible tells me that He wants me to be generous. So, but really, He's just trying to stifle my consumption, my joy, my enjoyment of all the pleasures that life has to offer. And then going back and going. Okay, well, if he's just trying to stifle me, I mean, did, did he really say that? I mean, there's nothing specifically in the Bible about motorcycles, so did he really say that? Did he really mean generosity at my expense, meaning that I won't experience some of the pleasures that this, this world has to offer because I'm looking to the good of other people? Did he really say that? And then arriving at, you know what? Forget it. Surely he doesn't care. Surely he doesn't care if I take my margin and I spend it on this thing. Now look, I'm not I'm not saying that motorcycles are a bad thing or even that they're sinful. But I'm telling you that when my heart is doing that, I can know that there's something else at play beyond just buying a motorcycle. And you can take this and I again, you can apply it to just about any situation. Should I go over to this person's house at 2 a.m. in the morning? Like, why wouldn't I? God just wants to restrict my joy. God just wants me to not. It's, it's, it's an arcane rule. It's archaic. It's outdated. Part of an outdated society, outdated culture. We've been sexually liberated for years now. What difference does it make? And then, oh, I still kind of got a problem with it. Did God really even say that? I mean, is it really like, let's go in and, you know, try to do some jumping jacks to get ourselves out of this. Essentially. And then to just, well, who cares anyway? Does God even really know what's best for me? I don't, I don't believe that what's best for me is to not go and do this thing. Right? Over and over and over again, this is the progression. And then what happens? Right? There's, there's results. So the, the fall happens, and, 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 and there's a result to the fall, a very clear result that God, one, already told them would happen. They will experience death. But then he gives some nuance to it 
in the curse that he lays upon them, right? Right? So in Genesis chapter 3, verse 7, it tells us that the eyes of both were open. They knew that they were naked, right? This is the first time that Adam and Eve experienced shame. And it's not just a shame in front of one another where they go, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, we're naked. Like, I can't, I don't, I can't have you see this. But it's also a shame before God to where God's presence before in the garden was like, my God's here. He's in the garden. We're going to walk and we're going to talk and we're going to know each other and we're going to love and we're going to understand, right? All of that turns into, right? I'm trying, to, I'm trying to hide from God. I don't want God to see me. I don't want God to know me because I know when he sees me, he's going to know. Sin brings in shame and sin disrupts the fellowship that we were meant to have with God and that we were meant to have with one another. And the curse is then given. And this is what it says in Genesis 3.14. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, you have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you. You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And so what happens here? God declares war. I will put enmity between you and the woman. You will bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. He says, war's coming, but I'm going to win it. And then what does he do? He goes on to reinforce, right, the same ordinances of creation. Right, like what we saw at the outset, before the fall, which is, which is that we would be fruitful and multiply, right? That we would work, that we would rest, and that we would marry. He says all of those things are still going to be in play, but we're going to experience them with a measure of brokenness that that was never meant to be there. So, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth is still in in play, but now there will be the cha- the pain of childbirth. So children are still a blessing. It's the pain that's the curse. Some of you that have children are like, I don't know about that. There's only like one of you in here, so. Right? No, the children are a blessing. Children are a blessing. It's the, it's the pain of childbirth. It's the toil that's the curse. The same is certainly true for multiplying parishes and planting churches. The second, the second ordinance, right? Subdue the earth, have dominion over it, right? That's still at play. He says you're still going to do those things, but now cursed is the ground, right? So the labor is still good, right? L- labor is not something that's going to go, like when you get to heaven, it's not going to be like hanging on my cloud, you know? Like just wasting away. It's not. Labor is a good thing. Labor is part of what God does. 
it's part of God's image in us. We were created for it. It's just that now it's broken. It's toilsome. It's tiresome. It's sometimes unfruitful because cursed is the ground. We're still going to keep the Sabbath. We're still going to be invited to rest. And yet, we will find it difficult to do so because our pain and our sweat and death will all plague us, keep us from resting. And we'll still hold fast to our wives. That's still a commandment. That's still part of what God has designed marriage to be, right? That a man and a woman would hold fast to one another, becoming one flesh. But now there's going to be discord in that relationship. So that's the blessings, the obligations of the covenant. We've seen how Adam has utterly wrecked and ruined it. Adam and Eve both culpable, responsible in bringing what was good and glorious to, be, to, to become what was broken and sinful. And so how does Christ fulfill this covenant, right? Ironically, the words of the curse that we just read inaugurate the covenant of grace, right? So up, up until this point, right, the covenant that God had with man was a covenant of works, right? Adam, this is what you've been called to do. This is what you've been called to not do. So long as those things are in play, here's the blessings that you're going to experience, right? You're going to experience life. You're going to experience relationship with me. You're going to experience relationship with one another. You're going to experience paradise, right? We failed at the covenant of work. Failed at it. But even in that moment, even in that moment, God initiates and inaugurates a new covenant. It's a covenant of grace. And it's a covenant, really, that sits as an umbrella over all of the covenants that we're going to see from now on. Right? Like, God didn't owe us favor in the first place because we're created beings, but now, certainly, He doesn't owe us favor. In fact, He owes us the opposite. Right? Surely you will die. And yet, God is gracious in that, in that moment. He, he, he doesn't immediately off them. Right? So He initiates this covenant of grace, and He gives us the first telling of the Gospel. And some of us are like, wait a minute, what? I thought the Gospels weren't until the New Testament when Jesus comes. And, well, while the outworkings and the specific nuances of the gospel are present in those ways in a way that they're not right here, there is certainly a proclamation of the gospel. The first one, actually, in the Bible takes place in Genesis chapter 3, in verse 15, when it says this, I will put enmity between you, you being Satan, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. He's saying, look, Satan, You've dealt a blow, certainly. You've dealt a blow. You've bitten the heel. But there is one coming of the woman. There is an offspring coming, and he will crush your head. So even in this curse, even in the midst of it, God says, look, this, this, this means war. This is broken. This is like... There, there's something that has seriously gone wrong here, and yet, there will be one that comes, and he will make these things right, and he will end the reign and the rule and the dominion of the deceiver and the one who would keep us from living into all that God has called us to live into 
out of his grave. The offspring of the woman will crush the head of the serpent, and he will be defeated. Now, if you're wondering how I make that stretch, right, from Genesis 3 to Jesus, which is like thousands of years later, right, just read 1 Corinthians 15. And this is what it says. I'll, I'll be brief. Verse 20. In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, that's Adam, right? By a man has come also the resurrection from the dead. So, so by one man came death, by another man, resurrection, provision for that death will be made. Verse 22, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits. Then it is coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule, every authority and power, for he must reign until what? He has put all his enemies where? Under his feet. Under his feet. Christ is the offspring of the woman who crushes the head of the serpent. Jesus fulfills God's promise to crush Satan through the offspring of the woman, and Jesus fulfills the covenant of works so that we can now experience the fullness of the covenant of grace. Right? Jesus lives up. Jesus tells us, not an iota, not a jot, not a dot, not a tittle, not one inkling of the law has passed away. I've just fulfilled it all. I've just done it all for you. That's all still in play. The covenant of works is still in play. The, The difference is that I've completed it, and so now I can extend to you a covenant of grace whereby you experience God's presence and favor apart from the fact that you're sinful and that you're broken. To such a degree, in fact, that now I, Jesus, have not only paid for your sinfulness and brokenness, I've taken it upon myself and I've given you my clean record under the covenant of work. And so we stand between eternity where the covenant of works has been completed by Christ, his covenant of grace is made freely available in Christ, and yet the reality is that we live with the ongoing power and presence of sin, right? And so the question is that as we experience the effects of the fall, like what, what do we do with that? How do we live? And these are just the two things that I would have us, have us leave with and, and we'll be done. Here's what I would say is this. We should expect enmity. Right? Like God says that that's going to happen. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Like, there will be enmity between those who belong to Christ, that offspring. Right? There will be enmity between those and Satan. That's going to happen. You see, there's this weird, like, cultural idea that, that like, in the United States, following Jesus um, is something that, brings comfort in all of its fullness and all of its glory. And what I would tell you is that that um, comfort and joy are two very different things. That joy takes place in the absence of comfort where comfort is lost apart from joy. Right? And what, what Christianity, what following God entails is, is again, not necessarily comfort, but, but joy. But joy in the midst of all of that. And when we look at spiritual spiritual warfare and when we think of that progression and 
mind so easily. Like, we should expect that. We should expect that that's going to happen, and yet we should expect that, and we should confront that in confidence that because of what Jesus has done, we've been released from the bondage of slavery to sin and death. That's what Romans is all about. Go read it. It's great. And the second thing I would say is this. Let's, let's be distinct. Right? And that I think that what, what, what so plagues the American church and what makes us so utterly uncompelling to the world around us is that we're just as enamored with it as they are. And yet what God has told us is that there's a different way to live life and that it's a, a way that actually is We as Christians don't fight sin to look better or to feel better about ourselves. We fight sin because sin makes us less human. We experience less of what we were meant to experience. We experience less of what God designed us to enjoy and to be. We experience a lot in that. And we fight sin because Jesus won the victory to set us free from it. And when we do that, when we do that, when we put to death our greed, when we put to death our pride, when we put to death our, our lust, when we put to death all of these other things, our want and need for other people's approval, when we put those things to death, we actually offer the world something that nobody else can or will offer. We're offering it a way back to God. We're offering it a place, a context in which relationship, not just with God is restored, but relationship with one another is restored. And this, brothers and sisters, is why our relationships together really are so important, why it is so much more than just a Sunday morning activity that we're doing here. Because God draws us together in a way that no other philosophy, no other line of thought can bring us together, and it gives us the context in which that happens and the spiritual, supernatural ability to see that become a reality. And one day, that'll happen finally and fully. That's what Revelation's all about. You get freaked out and weirded out about Revelation. Like, that's all it's about. We're going to arrive. Jesus is going to win the battle. And we're all going to live gloriously together. Tongues, different tongues, different nations, different tribes, all together, worshiping the same God in unison, a relationship with him, a relationship with one another. And we get to taste a measure of that right now in the church. That's what this is. We taste a measure of that. And as we taste that, not only do we get to enjoy it, but other people get to look and go, oh my gosh, that's, that's compelling. That's compelling. That's a, that's a compelling place to be. Because it offers me something different than all the trivial word I can't use that this world has to offer. We live distinctly so as to have something to offer the world. We're offering them a pathway back to Eden. The church is the place where God's covenant of grace reigns. 